Welcome to the Body and Beyond podcast with Alice and Gina. A podcast sparking discussion on all things health, mindset, fitness, goals, and motivation. We strive to help you to boost your confidence, to take the lead in your own life, to back yourself, and to step into your full potential. Hey everyone, welcome to the Body and Beyond podcast with Alice and Gina. Today we have a very special guest, Ebony Cramery. Um, Ebony, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We are really excited to have you on today's podcast to chat more about PCOS in particular um, with women's health and nutrition. But before we get into our topic, we would love to just hear a little more about yourself where you're from and where you studied and also what inspired you to get into this area specifically of nutrition? Yeah, so I've been working as a dietitian now for over 12 years, but I didn't always work in the area of fertility and PCOS. So I spent the first, I would say, half of my career working as a clinical hospital dietitian um, and also in private practice as well, doing a little bit of everything. And it wasn't until I started going through my own struggles with infertility that I really started to investigate and dive into the world of fertility nutrition. And I was completely blown away at the impact. Like I knew, you know, nutrition played a role in fertility, but I didn't realize how significant that could be and what specific recommendations were really required to see those benefits and those changes. So once I'd sort of completed my own family and I came out the other side of that um, infertility journey, I decided to really um, specialise in this field um, and do further training in the area of fertility nutrition and PCOS nutrition in particular because PCOS was a condition that a lot of women were coming to see me about and were really struggling to find good quality information um, out there on the topic. So there was a huge need and um, yeah, that's how I started to sort of work in this space. Would you mind um, for our listeners explaining what PCOS is and what the acronym stands for? Yeah, so PCOS stands for Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome and it's a metabolic and reproductive condition that affects around 1 in 10 women. So it is really, really common. And to be diagnosed with PCOS, you have to meet a certain criteria. So you have to meet two of the three criteria. And I'll just quickly run through those. So you have to have polycystic ovaries on ultrasound or having high androgens, which are your male hormones, and they result in symptoms like acne and excess hair growth, um, male pattern baldness and hair fall, and finally, irregular periods. So in order for your doctor to diagnose you with this condition, you need to have two of those uh, or meet two of those three criteria. Okay. Thank you. We were thinking today that we could probably debunk a couple of the most common PCOS myths that we sort of hear and maybe just chat a little more about them in detail. Um, and I'll just run through those three points that we thought we would talk about today. Um, so the first one is all women with PCOS need to cut out carbs and dairy. That's something that we definitely see floating around. Absolutely. Um, 
Oh, the second one is all women who are diagnosed with PCS are destined to gain weight. And mm-hmm. the third one is losing weight will be an easy fix for PCOS or women who have been diagnosed with PCOS. So they are three common statements, I would say, that we, that I mean, I've heard as a um, fitness coach, you know, in my time in the industry, and I'm sure Gina, maybe you've probably heard these as well. So um, do we want to start with number one, which is all women with PCOS need to cut out carbs and dairy? What are your thoughts on that? I hear that all the time. That's probably one of the biggest, messages I see out there on social media and online and it's probably one of the most asked questions both by my clients when they first come to see me and also on socials as well and look I'm not 100% even sure where this piece of advice has come from originally but it has really taken off and there actually is very or no evidence to support cutting out gluten or dairy from your diet if you have PCOS in terms of managing your PCOS. And I just want to say some people may not tolerate gluten or dairy in their diet. They may not feel great when they have those foods or they may have an allergy to those foods. And in those circumstances, absolutely, we are looking at either reducing or cutting out those foods. But if you don't need to, if you don't get those symptoms or if you don't have a diagnosed allergy or intolerance, there's absolutely no need to cut them out of your diet. And in fact, they play a really important role in things like providing us with good quality sources of fiber. So things like whole grains, really important for our gut health. And fermented dairy in particular is so good at providing us with that naturally occurring probiotics. Yeah. What I thought... uh personally that maybe maybe this statement sort of arise or came about from a lot of women having that correlation of PCOS and insulin resistance so Mm -hmm. um could you tell us a little about the I guess the relationship between insulin resistance and PCOS and whether they do tend to come together or whether they're complete separate things yeah insulin resistance is so common in PCOS so it is a real driver of the condition and studies show that anywhere up to 95% of people who struggle with their weight who have PCOS will also have insulin resistance and up to 75% of people with lean PCOS will also have insulin resistance so most people who have PCOS will have some degree of insulin resistance and it really does filter through to almost all of the symptoms that people can experience with PCOS. So it is a really important place to start for a large number of people who have PCOS. Yeah. And just to be clear, is that something that, to your knowledge, that a doctor would uh, always test uh, as well for someone who is diagnosed with PCOS? So is that kind of a standard test that they would do alongside that diagnosis? Do you know or? Yeah, so with insulin resistance, because it's not part of that diagnostic criteria, so you don't have to have insulin resistance to be diagnosed with PCOS. And there are people with PCOS who don't have insulin resistance. It doesn't affect 100% of people with the condition. Um, But depending on the individual, potentially, yes, your doctor would recommend that you be tested for insulin resistance. So a really good example is the guidelines recommend that if you are struggling with your weight, if you are carrying extra weight, that you that in itself increases your risk of insulin resistance along with your PCOS. So further investigations would definitely be recommended in that circumstance. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of our guests actually had a question for you in terms of um, for those who know that they do have insulin resistance, do mm. you support in that case uh, a low-carb diet? Yeah, that's a really good question because that is probably my that would be on par with the gluten and the dairy question around Mm. carbs and how much should I be eating or should I have to cut them out of my diet if I have PCOS? And the answer is definitely not. So when we actually look at all of the research around different dietary patterns that help with insulin resistance and PCOS, we see a huge range in carbohydrate intakes that can be beneficial. So anywhere from 25% of overall energy intake right up to 50% of energy intake can help to manage your PCOS and your insulin resistance. It really depends on your individual circumstances. So things like your level of insulin resistance, are you severely insulin resistant or are you just mildly insulin resistant? How much exercise are you doing? That plays such an important role in your carbohydrate intake. Do you lead a really active lifestyle or maybe you don't do a lot of physical activity? Um, And then also the foods that you enjoy. If you love eating carbohydrate-based foods and you find that they fuel you, they fill you up, they give you energy, trying to adopt a really low carb diet is probably not going to be a great option for you Um, whereas if you're someone that maybe you know prefers other types of foods it might be a better fit for you so I guess the really good news is there is a huge variability in the amount of carbohydrates that you can have if you have PCOS it's not just this one golden number that everyone has to hit this amount of carbohydrates so it's really nice we have flexibility with that and we can adapt it to fit the individual in front of us yeah yeah cool that's really helpful and I think it is so important to take an individualized approach hey so everyone is an individual and then working with a specialist such as yourself that's where you tailor it to that person yeah and I see too often people um being given the advice of needing to follow a low-carb diet, but that's where the advice stops. Mm. And people get really confused, like, what is a low-carb diet? Very vague, yeah. And then the easiest option is just to cut them out altogether. And often that doesn't end well because as soon as you deprive yourself of a certain food, as soon as you cut it out completely, that food is just going to be at the forefront of your mind and you can really get stuck in that restrict binge cycle um, which when you have PCOS you're already at a higher risk of binge eating because of those hormonal imbalances that occur so yeah it's definitely one that we don't want to be you know just giving really vague general advice around because it just ends up being too confusing and I know today's podcast we are you know specifically talking about PCOS but since we're on the topic as from your perspective as a nutritionist and dietitian mm-hmm. can you please clarify for potentially some listeners who um, do have some questions around low carb diets uh, just just to get your opinion on people who think they need to cut out carbs to lose body fat yeah, so definitely not something that I advocate for in my practice. Carbs play a really, really important role in a number of different areas in our health. Um, and there are numerous studies that show that including carbohydrates in your diet most definitely can still result in weight loss. So it's not the carbohydrate component that is necessarily contributing to your weight gain or the difficulties of you losing weight. Um, It's very likely other factors of your your diet. So no, definitely do not need to cut out carbs um, to lose weight. 
Yes. Thank you. Yeah. We've been reiterating that for a few episodes, but it's always great yeah. to get your input. Um, yeah. The second myth we'd love your input on is all women who are diagnosed with PCOS are destined to gain weight. Yeah. And look, that's definitely not the case because we do know um, PCOS, we can see PCOS in both lean patients and also um, clients who are struggling with their weight. It's more common um, in people who struggle with their weight, but around 20 to 30% of people with PCOS will have a BMI of under 25. Mm -hmm. But really interestingly, with with our lean PCOS clients, we still see changes in body composition. So even though BMI um, is within the healthy weight range, um, we do tend to see more of that abdominal fat or weight gain around the midsection, um, which we know does increase uh, metabolic risk factors. So increases your risk of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So we see those same risk factors regardless of whether you have lean PCOS or if you are struggling with your weight as well. Mm-hmm. And do you, like as a nutritionist and in your practice, do you ever see a link between like psychologically for people when they are diagnosed with something such as PCOS, mm-hmm. does psychologically that impact their, them almost reasoning with certain side effects, not side effects, but, um, you know, maybe body changes, You're, like just from a psychological perspective, do you see there are any links there? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I address specifically, um, I have a PCOS-specific program and I actually spend a lot of time explaining the reason why people experience the symptoms they experience with PCOS because it's so empowering because so often I see people blaming themselves for things like their cravings or their weight gain or their acne and to really break it down and show what's happening inside their bodies that's causing these symptoms often brings a huge sense of relief, um, first of all, that they're not blaming themselves, that they've somehow brought this on, but it also gives them the skills and the knowledge to be able to advocate for themselves as well when they go to doctor's appointments and other health professional appointments. So I think psychologically it can have a huge benefit in understanding mm-hmm. what's actually happening inside your body. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's really cool. Because it's um it's a bit of a worry, hey, even with general population, when people, um, you know, have almost have goals they want to achieve, and then they start restricting, like you were referring before, say cutting out carbs or restricting certain food groups, and then, like you mentioned, it's at the forefront of your brain, and then people have that binge restrict cycle, and then psychologically, then they start, you know, it's almost a downward spiral um, where it didn't have to be like that that in the first place, so. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And with PCOS, it's a chronic illness. So unfortunately, we don't have a cure for the condition. So any sort of diet and lifestyle changes that you're going to make need to suit you and they need to be sustainable for you and your individual circumstances, because this is something that you're going to have ongoing and you're going to have to manage ongoing. So if you try dietary changes and they're too far from what your normal is and they're um, completely different and unsustainable for you, then it's very likely that you will revert back into those old habits that you were previously previously doing. So, yeah, sustainability is essential. Mm, thank you. I would love to know as well, so... <clears throat> 
with that whole statement of people being diagnosed with PCOS and being destined to gain weight, which we know is not necessarily true, mm. what, uh, what are some of the main factors with PCOS um, women that actually do correlate with weight gain, would you say? Yeah, insulin resistance is the big one um, because we know that being insulin resistant predisposes weight gain, particularly around that midsection. And we see that regardless of your weight. So whether you're lean or whether you um, are overweight, you will tend to gain weight around that midsection. And we know that is a bigger predictor of those metabolic complications like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease than overall weight. So that's something a really important consideration. Insulin resistance also um, increases cravings because high levels of insulin are an appetite stimulant. So your muscle and your brain aren't getting the energy that they need. So it drives that appetite and drives that hunger. So for someone who doesn't have insulin resistance, they aren't struggling with those hurdles that someone with PCOS and insulin resistance is. So it just makes it more challenging um, to lose weight and much easier to gain weight. Because yeah. we have talked a lot about insulin resistance, is there maybe an easy way that you could maybe describe to those who don't know what insulin resistance is? Like, what is it? <laughs> yeah, no, that is a really good question because... We often throw that term around, but most people when they come to see me don't know what it is. They've been told they've, ha- they've got it, but they're like, what is it exactly? Um, basically, insulin resistance occurs when your body doesn't utilize insulin effectively. So insulin is a hormone that's produced by our pancreas, and its job is to help glucose to get inside the cells of our brain and our muscle so that our body can use it for energy. And glucose, um, carbohydrates, break down into glucose. So when you have insulin resistance and you eat carbohydrate-based foods, um, they break down into glucose. Your body produces insulin, but your body has a lot of difficulty utilizing that insulin and getting that glucose into your cells. So we get this buildup in your bloodstream. And you can imagine if your brain and your muscles aren't getting that energy, they're going to be going, hang on, like I need more food, I need more carbohydrates, I need fuel, I'm getting really fatigued and tired. So fatigue's a really common symptom of PCOS. Um, and yeah, it's going to drive you to eat more of those carbohydrate-based foods. And as I said, when those insulin levels are high, that causes your body to gain weight predominantly around the midsection, um, along with other metabolic complications as well. It also increases inflammation, which in itself makes weight loss more challenging. So there's all of these flow-on effects. Um, it increases the amount of androgens, those male hormones that your ovaries produce, so you can get the acne and the excess hair growth. So when I say insulin resistance really is the focus point for a lot of people, it's because it filters out into all of those areas. That was a great explanation. <laughs> so the third point is losing weight will easily fix PCOS. So I think I've honestly heard this statement made by, you know, women who have been diagnosed with PCS and they've been told by someone, you have PCOS, therefore mm-hmm. you should go and lose weight. And so it's a bit confusing for them, right? Because, I mean, some women are confused into thinking that they've got PCOS because of the weight issue instead of the other way around. So did you want to explain a little about that statement? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's so confusing when 
someone's been told to go and lose weight with PCOS and they go and try and it can be really, really challenging. Um, just to be really clear, your weight hasn't caused your PCOS. We don't actually know what causes PCOS still. That's still an unknown, but it's thought to be due to um, a combination of genetic environmental factors. There's research to show that changes can happen whilst during the womb. So whilst your mother was pregnant with you, that could potentially predispose you to, to having PCOS. So it's definitely nothing that you've eaten or done that has caused you to have this condition. Um, but yes, with um, PCOS and weight, I've just had a mind blank too, sorry. <laughs> what the original question was? <laughs> sorry, what was the original question there? So the statement was that losing weight will be an easy fix for people with PCOS. That's so they're crap. basically people saying that if you lose weight, your PCOS is going to be better or the symptoms are going to go away, which is a bit yeah. of a catch-22, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, so we, we do know from the research that weight loss can help to improve and moderate weight loss. Five to 10% of body weight can help to um, support a regular cycle, um, improve insulin sensitivity, um, but that weight loss is really more challenging for someone with PCOS to achieve. So the way I approach weight management with PCOS, because we can still see benefits in symptoms, menstrual cycle regularity without losing any weight at all as well. So what I really focus on is addressing those underlying drivers that make it more challenging to lose weight. So things like the insulin resistance and inflammation in particular. So adopting an anti-inflammatory dietary pattern. Once you've got that really good diet quality where you're addressing those underlying drivers, then we can focus on things like calories and being in a calorie deficit to help lose weight and then maintaining consistency with that. But if you're not focusing on um, diet quality first and addressing that insulin resistance and addressing that inflammation, it is almost impossible to try and be in any sort of calorie deficit. Yeah, that's a really important point you've just made because a lot of what you see generally out in the fitness industry right now is very calories in, calories out based. And I think mm. um, as, as much as that is a big part of general fat loss, when you mm. are someone who has been diagnosed with PCOS, it's so important to probably understand that, that that's not, that's not going to be the first place that you start. Like just putting yourself into a deficit is not going to cut it. Um, no, because what will happen is if you launch straight into that without addressing those underlying hormonal issues um, that drive that weight gain with PCOS, then you're going to go into a calorie deficit, but you're still going to be experiencing those cravings. You're still going to be experiencing the fatigue, and it's just going to be so much more challenging for you to sustain and maintain that. And what I often see when we address those underlying factors, so that insulin resistance and the inflammation, and really focus on diet quality without even looking at calories, we'll often see weight loss as a result of that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I was curious, you mentioned um, the inflammation and, and having an anti-inflammatory diet. So I'm curious mm. to know what, what kind of foods does that, what does that look like? What, what would you recommend in that instance? 
Yeah, so we, there is this is another area where there's a lot of misinformation out there around inflammation and the role diet and lifestyle can play. When we actually look at the research, there are three dietary patterns that actually have research to support lowering inflammatory markers in the body. That's the Mediterranean dietary pattern, the vegetarian diet, and the DASH diet, which was a diet that was originally um, developed to help lower high blood pressure. So all of those diets though, or dietary patterns have very similar components. And the big underlying factor that sort of overarches all of those three eating patterns is a predominantly plant-based diet. So lots of plant-based foods um, and fiber. So you'll see in all of those eating patterns, really focusing on vegetables, fruits, beans, legumes, lentils, nuts and seeds, um, and whole grains as foods that you include every day. When you're looking at um, animal proteins, really focusing on your chicken, turkey, and seafood as your predominant protein sources, and not going overboard with those either. So not having huge amounts of those on a day-to-day basis. Um, and it, remember, this is just general um, recommendations as well. Individual circumstances may be different. Um, and then really limiting processed meats and red meats to once a week and also those highly processed foods. So um, your convenience foods like lollies and chocolates and takeaways and those sorts of things, trying to limit those as much as possible. Yeah. And with... Um the anti-inflammatory diet, does anything change within the actual menstrual cycle? So follicular or luteal phases, does anything change with your recommendations? Obviously, it'll be a one-on-one conversation with someone, but generally, does it change or just incorporate all of those things all the time? Yeah, so when we look at, um, once again, when we look at studies around this, the Mediterranean diet and low glycemic index diets have both shown benefits in terms of improving menstrual cycle regularity in PCOS specifically. So, and that's definitely something that I see in my practice as well by making those dietary changes that really lower inflammation and following that Mediterranean style of eating can most definitely help to support a regular menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. Wow. I would love to know, this is probably getting a little bit further into detail, but what's your opinion on um, the vegan or plant-based food that we do have available at the moment? Because this is something that um, I personally wondered about. I I do often eat more um, animal-based protein myself, but obviously you walk down the aisle these days and you see so much uh, plant uh, plant alternative protein but then you kind of flip the back of the packet and you just see like there's so many ingredients in it and half the time I'm not even sure what some of it is so I just wanted to know because um, you did mention um, plant-based eating does that include these uh, kind of substitutes, substitutes? Yeah. yeah yeah good question so just a note on the plant-based eating and I always like to clarify this um, the Mediterranean dietary pattern, there is still most definitely a place for animal proteins. And I personally love the flexibility of being able to work with animal proteins as well, because it gives us so many more options and variety and they've got important nutrients, especially from a fertility perspective. Um, but when it comes to the plant-based alternatives, when we're looking at Mediterranean dietary patterns, the plant-based sources of protein are coming from things like lentils, legumes and chickpeas. So straight legumes, lentils and chickpeas, not modified in any way. Um, Nuts and seeds and also things like tofu. So it doesn't really incorporate those more processed 
types of plant-based alternatives. In saying that, there are some of those pre-made plant-based alternatives that are absolutely okay to have, but there are, like anything, others that maybe not are the best choice either. So we just have to be mindful if you're going to be choosing those just to make sure that they fit with your health goals in terms of the ingredients that are included um, in them. And I always recommend going with whole foods wherever possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned fertility again. So I was just thinking if we go down that path, um, like what 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 do you typically see or what are your recommendations around if a woman yeah is having issues with getting pregnant or wanting to become more fertile? Um, yeah, what what are some general recommendations or yeah, things you see? Yeah, so with fertility, it really depends on which component um, that client is struggling with or what issue they're struggling with. So in order to have a successful pregnancy, we need obviously an egg, we need sperm, we need successful implantation, and then we need supporting early pregnancy. So every single person will have, I guess, a, will present with a different concern. So I do a lot of work with PCOS clients. So often for my PCOS clients, it's ovulation. So if you're not ovulating regularly, you've got less chances of falling pregnant, or if you're not ovulating at all, it's impossible to fall pregnant. So for someone like that, we would really be looking at dietary strategies to support regular ovulation, mm -hmm. as opposed to someone who may come to see me to look at um, optimizing IVF treatment, where we'll be looking at that egg quality, sperm quality, and specific strategies to help with that. But when it comes to fertility, the Mediterranean diet, once again, is um, has been shown to be really beneficial for IVF and also, as I said, menstrual cycle regularity for PCOS. So it does cover a lot of those areas as well. Mm -hmm. It's thought to be due to that anti-inflammatory effect of the diet. Would you mind clarifying what the Mediterranean diet consists of roughly as well? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So daily intakes of your whole grains, lentils, legumes, chickpeas, beans, nuts and seeds, mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So they're the core component every single day at most meals. We want to be including those. Then we're looking at um, protein sources like eggs, seafood and poultry as your primary animal proteins um, red meat try to limit that to sort of once a week and those more processed foods like lollies chips chocolate those sorts of treat occasional foods um, once a week as well there's also a place for um, alcohol in the mediterranean diet so Two, up to two standard drinks a day of wine is typically recommended. Obviously, if you're trying to conceive, that's a different story. But in general, there is a place for that. And there's also a really big focus on eating in social settings. So making sure you're eating with friends, family, daily movement. So making sure that you're moving your body in some way, shape or form every day and staying nice and hydrated as well. Yeah, cool. Thank you. That's a snapshot. Yeah, snapshot. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's really cool. What other questions did you have, Alice? Well, they were our three main statements, I think, that we've answered. But I guess... I've got one more. Oh, you do? <laughs> I do have one more. Um, 
One more is, um, so you mentioned that ovulation is a key component that needs to be taken care of for women wanting to fall pregnant. So I was thinking a good question could be for women who may be one to two years away from wanting to conceive, what kind of preparation could we, and I say we as in us as well, what could we do in advance prior to wanting to fall pregnant? Yeah, and with um, nutrition for fertility and also for PCOS too, we really need time. So time is your best friend when it comes to making diet and lifestyle changes because these things don't happen overnight. So at a minimum, I really like clients to spend at least three months focused on making diet and lifestyle changes before actively trying to conceive. So sort of a year or two out from planning on falling pregnant would be ideal because then you can kind of just take it at your own pace rather than trying to rush through it all really quickly. Um, But the first thing would be to look at potentially having a conversation with your doctor if you're on um, any form of contraception about potentially coming off that contraception, especially if you have any history of irregular cycles, because we really want to make sure that you're ovulating regularly when you're trying to conceive, because as I said, it's really going to increase your chances of falling pregnant. And then if you identify that irregular ovulation is an issue for you, then you can start putting those steps into place, looking at your diet and lifestyle um, to really support that ovulation. Um, and as I said, when there's a really interesting new study that's come out that looked at PCOS in particular, um, trying to conceive with PCOS, And it showed that um, when making diet and lifestyle changes, there was no real benefits that were seen from a fertility perspective before the three-month mark. But once um, people hit three months of making those changes, that's when the benefits um, started to become apparent. And the longer those changes were made, the more significant those benefits were. So it's really important to, you know, give it time um, and consistency with those changes to get the the best benefits from making those changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. And um, so for someone who does have a regular cycle and they're ovulating consistency, but consistent cycle length, et cetera, yep. are there any other things that you would recommend just from a health and wellness perspective in preparation? Yeah, so the first thing would be to look at starting on a really good quality prenatal supplement that has adequate folate and iodine in particular. They're the two really key nutrients for the development of your baby's brain, um, spinal cord, uh, neural tube. So we want to make sure that you're getting that at least 12 weeks before falling pregnant. So that would be the first important thing. The second thing would be to touch base with your doctor for a preconception checkup, um, making sure that, you know, you're getting all your um, blood tests done, making sure you don't have any nutrient deficiencies that could potentially impact on your ability to fall pregnant. And then just looking at general um, healthy eating for fertility, really making sure that you're getting lots of those different colored fruits and vegetables in your diet for those antioxidants. So every different colored fruits and vegetable will have different types of antioxidants and that can be beneficial for lowering inflammation, helping with egg and sperm health. Um, and then also making sure that you are eating enough 
So getting enough calories in your diet, because that's something that I do see a lot in my clinic is under eating. Uh, that can impact on ovulation. Just as, So having a low body weight can have just as big an impact on a regular ovulation as having too much body fat. So we really want to make sure that you are fueling your body adequately to support ovulation. Um, and then just on the topic of ovulation, making sure that you are actually ovulating regularly because having a regular period doesn't always necessarily mean that you're ovulating every cycle. So sometimes um, you may not be ovulating at all. That can happen. You can still have a bleed um, or you might be ovulating every second or third cycle, um, which once again just limits your chances of falling pregnant when you do start trying. That's really interesting. I That's didn't really actually know that myself. So, yeah. Um, do you, I mean, could you maybe touch on a few of the things that we could keep an eye on in order to understand whether we are ovulating or not? I yeah. know that some apps, obviously, like personally, I think I'm not sure which one you use, Gina, but I use the Flow app, which also gives you some tips, I guess, on tracking your symptoms and your period. But is there anything that you can kind of think of that we that might be able to tell us whether we are ovulating? <laughs> Yeah, so the apps, um, I'm glad you raised that because they're really popular, um, yep. but I like to see apps as more of a place to store your data. So the predictability um, of those apps is really poor in terms of ovulation. There's quite a lot of error uh, in those and they're only as good as the data that you enter into it so if you're just solely relying off like if you're putting in um when your first day of your cycle first day of your bleed and then letting the app calculate your predicted um date that you're ovulating mm -hmm. the reliability of that's quite low um quite poor so the best way to track your cycle or to confirm ovulation is by checking your basal body temperature. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of different ways you can do that. You can do it manually or you can buy little um, devices that you wear at night and it will do it all for you, which is really nice and easy. Um, but that will confirm that you're ovulating. Then you can look at other methods to um, identify your fertile window. So that's things like your ovulation predictor kits that you can buy over the counter. So they just detect your fertile window. They don't actually tell you if you've ovulated or not. Um, looking at things like physical symptoms. So some people will feel ovulation pain. So like that little twinge or um, like pelvic pain around the time of ovulation. Some people can really feel that quite um, significantly as well um, looking at cervical fluid and changes in cervical fluid because your cervical fluid will change during your fertile window um, and then also symptoms like um, tender sore breasts mood changes they're a little bit more subjective though so like a little bit hard to pinpoint but if you're tracking all that in an app sometimes you can see patterns with that as well yeah so you're saying that cervical fluid um, would not change or would change whether you ovulated or not, as in there is the cervical fluid changes aren't consistent with the, if there's, yeah, ovulation or no ovulation? Yeah, so you can still see cervical uh, changes in your cervical fluid and not ovulate. Okay, so you might yes. get those changes in hormones, like you might get the LH surge, but then it doesn't quite eventuate. And so it's not a like you wouldn't use that alone to determine if you're ovulating. What we use um, the cervical fluid for is trying to pinpoint that fertile window. Um, so you can time intercourse. Um, appropriately so you have the best chances of falling pregnant and typically you see that cervical mucus or that fertile cervical mucus 
anywhere sort of like three days before you ovulate. So it gives you a bit of warning too. But it does change from person to person as well. And um, we will wrap up the podcast shortly. But what's the change in temperature when we know to, to know you're ovulating, actually ovulating? Yeah, so we're looking for that half degree um, okay. consistent rise in basal body temperature over a couple of days. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But there's some really good information out there. Most, like, if you see your doctor, they've got really good resources on how to track your basal body temperature. And if you buy a wearable device, mm. then it does it all for you. And it calculates when um, you're when you your day that you're going to ovulate so that's really accurate and if you're not want, like if you're busy and you don't want to manually take your basal body temperature every morning then that would be my recommendation yeah i've got the new aura ring in my in my cupboard i need to just put it on and get started but it's the um the ring oh so yeah this, awesome. is the, this is the gen 2 but the gen 3 i just haven't opened yet it's in my cupboard i want to set it up but that one's got like in enhanced um temperature tracking so yeah and good. look that's such a nicer wearable as well yes. as some of the other big clunky ones that go onto yeah. your onto your arm so yeah that's great and yeah. you can also get internal devices as well which is the most accurate that you can mm. get but um the ring is a really good option mm. and does that uh, temperature spike both at your ovulation the same as when you actually are having your menstrual cycle so will it spike no again? it, it will drop yeah like only ovulation yeah Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> Learned a lot today. <laughs> I'm glad it was helpful. Yeah. I just wonder because I personally notice when I do, when I am on my menstrual cycle, like that time for me when I'm training, I personally feel really hot, like, and I sweat like so much more just mm -hmm. during that. But I, I haven't, what I'm asking for is I haven't really thought about it during ovulation time. So it's something now that I'm actually going to see whether I can feel any difference or... I don't know, but do you get that, Gina, or is it just me? <laughs> um, there's I definitely, definitely, I think more around ovulation, I feel hotter and I can be sweatier or a bit stinkier. Yeah, yeah. so then there's different signs there. Something's going I, on. Yeah. <laughs> I find it so interesting the whole area of research around, and it's like a growing area around training for your menstrual cycle. Like, I find that just fascinating um it's definitely not my area of expertise but I think it's something that we'll learn a lot more about and not even just physical training but doing different tasks at different stages of your menstrual mm -hmm. cycle as well so sort of tapping into how you experience um different emotions throughout that cycle and yeah using that to your advantage I think is yeah really interesting so yeah. interesting yeah Love it. Beautiful, Ebony. Well, um, could you please let us know um, what your website is and what your handle is on Instagram for our listeners so they can follow you? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at hormone.nutrition and my website is www.projectnutrition.com.au. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Today, Thanks. that was an awesome chat. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So <laughs> Beautiful. Well, um, yeah, thanks again for joining us and uh, Alice will wrap us up. Yeah, if you enjoyed this podcast, guys, don't forget, take a screenshot, tag Ebony, tag Gina or I and share it with your friends. We'd love to build our body and beyond community and we'll tune in with you guys for our next episode soon. See ya. Awesome. Thanks, guys. The Body and Beyond podcast is for information purposes only. This podcast does not constitute advice or services and the statements and views of the hosts and guests are not medical advice. 
The information provided should not be used for treatment or diagnosis purposes. Please discuss any information from this podcast with your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle. 